Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach, Nancy Norbeck. Let's go. My guest this week is author David Roth, who spent 35 years as a professional writer of documentaries, corporate communications, multimedia, and more before turning to creative writing. He completed his MFA in 2017 and published his debut novel, The Femme Fatale Hypothesis, in 2019. That book just received the American Book Fest's 2023 International Book Award for Best Literary Fiction. David and I talk about the differences between professional and creative writing, the pros and cons of the MFA, the inspiration for his novel, and more. And yes, the hypothesis is a real thing. Here's my conversation with David Roth. David, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. Well, thank you, Nancy. I appreciate your invite. (laughs) So I start everybody with the same question. Were you a creative kid or did you discover your creative side later in life? Well, actually, there's a, those are yes and yes questions. Um, as a kid, I suppose I was, I was uh, creative, not in the sense that um, uh, most would think of it in terms of, oh, you know, I was writing stories when I was six years old or anything like that, or painting pictures or, you know, singing and dancing around the house. But uh, I was always uh, intrigued and, and curious and interested in things that were going on and imitating. And I think probably the most from the, from the uh, creative side of things, it was more of the, uh, the, the imitating and having a good time and a good joke over things. You know, it's the kind of, kind of thing where uh, in high school, I was, uh, my girlfriend and I actually were voted class wits because of the way we would, <laughs> the way we would banter back and forth <laughs> in school. So uh, I'm not sure that was a compliment or, uh, or not, but uh, the, uh, I think that's where the creativity came in was basically in in language and and joking and having a good time. Now, the serious side of that came much later. I you know I did I did um, engage in the creative arts as a professional in the sense that I was writing for a living, but it was not my writing. It was professionals writing for either research, nonfiction, like medical writing, that sort of thing, or it was just corporate writing, uh, training. That's that's that sort of thing as well. So, um, yeah, the the personal writing, the fiction writing that I'm doing now came much later. This, you have some interesting distinctions in there because you said class wit, and I thought, well, that seems like an upgrade from class clown. And mm-hmm. I don't know how many high school classes would have thought to have a class wit. They had both. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of interesting. But also, you know, I think that that it's super important to distinguish writing that you do as part of a job or for other people from the things that you write for yourself. And I know a lot of people think that that's kind of the same thing, but but it's really it's really not. No, I mean, this is where. where I'm sure we'll get into this idea of imagination. I, I make it very clear, and I don't know how, how clean you prefer your language. I can't can be, be careful. I, could, I guess I could use a little softer terms, but there's, a, there's this moment when you're writing professionally um, where you, uh, you're, you, you, you basically don't want to make anything up because the people who are going to sign off on it and pay for it but somebody's going to say, who wrote this crap? <laughs> and you're going to have to raise your hand and say, I'm the guy in the room who knows the least about this, but nobody else wants to face a blank screen or a blank piece of paper. So I'm the guy who put some words on the page. And now you're all editors. I know it. You're all great editors and you know what's best. So now you tell me what you want this to say. And uh, I'm that guy who was willing in the professional environment because I just enjoy, I enjoy facing a blank piece of paper and a challenge. And uh, so I would put something down on paper and you cannot, if you're going to do that, you cannot have skin that's really skin. It's got to be leather thick and you just have to just roll with it uh, because you, no matter how much you love it or you think it's clever, it's probably not going to be the final product, right? But when you, when I started talking to my editor about my book, on the other hand, well, you know, there were, there were like gauntlets thrown down, you know, no, I'm not changing the ending. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say, you know, you know, and uh, this is my ending. This is my book. <laughs> you know? So that's where, where for me, there's a big difference between saying, look, I just put some words on the page. You do what you want. 
And there's a big, big uh, chasm between that. And these are my words. Don't mess, you know. Yeah. And I think it helps. Like, I don't know if this was the case for you, but I think it helps if your name is not on the stuff that you're writing Mm -hmm. for someone else, because Mm -hmm. I find it's always easier you know, I do something and somebody's like, no, we want this and we want that and it should be this way. And and I reach a point where even if I feel really strongly about it, I'm like, yeah, you know what? My name's not on it. You can do whatever you want with it. I don't care. Absolutely. But Absolutely. if my name is on it, then that's Absolutely. a different story. Yeah, it's a different story. I mean, you could, and you know, they, they, but it is, it's just a different world because nobody, what people care about when you're writing professionally is, are you easy to work with? Are you flexible? Do you understand that there's a guy who's going to come in and it's typically a guy who's going to come in at the 11th hour uh, and, uh, and, and blow everything up? You know, because nobody in the group, the, the production manager, didn't bother to get him to sign off on various drafts coming up to. Them. So you just have to realize that you're going to write three different drafts, and then somebody who has the ability to say yes or no is going to jump on and at the eleventh hour. Everything's going to change. You're going to be staying up late to to you know, write the words that, that he wants to fall in love with, and it may just be a matter of changing a sentence so he thinks he had some power whatever you know whatever it is but you know that's that's what you have to get used to when when you're writing for somebody else and nobody looks at a name on the cover and says who, who wrote this and you know don't ever hire him again what they'll do is they go that guy was a pain in the ass to work with don't ever hire him again you know so mm-hmm. i just try to be when i'm working professionally i just try to be very flexible and very amenable to change and and uh when i'm i, I save all the the egoism for my own work. (laughs) I think that's wise. I think that's the key to sanity. (laughs) Perhaps. It's it's maybe one of them. (laughs) Although egoism over your own work can be rather devastating as well. True. (laughs) That is very true. As anyone who has ever read a bad review of their work will know. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So how long... Have you written professionally? Well, I wrote professionally for 35 plus years, but uh, writing for myself uh, is really, I'd still call it an avocation. It's, it doesn't bring me any money. I mean, this is, I, I published my first novel. I've had a few short stories published. Boy, it was exciting to get a check for $100 for a short story that I published right out of, after getting my MFA. Uh, but when you start tallying up how many drafts and hours you spent writing that, you know, 5,000 word story that you got paid, hundred dollars for there's not a living in that <laughs> you could yeah, you no. could write you could write a hundred of those stories get a hundred of those hundred dollar bills of you know that you can't make a living on the time you're spending writing writing a five thousand word story so yeah we hate to shatter anybody's illusions but 95 <laughs> percent of the time that's what the what it looks like <laughs> yeah yeah so and I, and I, I mean I, I got I got paid in you know for the first three stories that I sold I got a hundred dollars for one I got um, uh, four copies of the uh, of the journal. That's how I was paid for another one of my stories, and another one was a uh, oh, I think it was a two hundred dollars second prize in a uh, in a contest. So that was very lucrative. So yeah, that's that's big money. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I spent a lot. I, can... I spent a lot more than that submitting to paid. <laughs> paid readings <laughs> so Say, basically you can, you can really quit your day job on that <laughs> exactly especially when you're spending 25 dollars to submit to each of the other you know places that sent you a no thank you notice so right yeah right well i'm i'm curious to know how if if you think that it's happened at all the professional writing has influenced your creative writing i think what's basically happened is i i realized that um and we and you you're talking about curiosity here what i what i find is that i am i i'm struck by how much i don't know you know i i don't have um i'm not one of those people who has a particular area of expertise i don't have a phd in something you know, musicology or something that's what i'm going to write i just get curious about things and so i look into them and and so i might have a you know, the beginnings of a story I might have something that is sort of drawn from my personal experience, but now that character has got to have an occupation or that character, some situation has to come up and it may involve anything from, you know, police work to, you know, somebody who's an entomologist. And, uh, I don't know anything about these things. And so I just love digging into them. And part of my 
courage or my willingness to do that and feel in the hubris that I feel that I can actually do it and make sense of it is that I had to do it all the time. People would call me and say, we need to write about these new 13, you know, you know, megabit computers or whatever, you know, they, you know, we have, we have these, we have these computers, the, the latest technology back in the day. I mean, I'm talking decades ago. <laughs> and, and then, uh, you know, somebody else would call me and say, we need somebody who can translate um, research on Alzheimer's disease into, um, into uh, uh, layman's English, because we are doing a presentation to these people of uh, awards for what they've accomplished. And so you need to, you know, try to turn all this medical gobbledygook into something that sounds like English. And uh, I said, sure, I can do that. I've never done it before, but I'll, I can do that, you know? So you have conversations with people and you you tell them, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about. What did you just say? And you find out that there are 27 different names for protein when it comes to, you know, when it comes to medicine. You know? So, uh, yeah, so I just, I think that's, that's what's informed my writing more than anything is just a sort of a fearlessness about what I don't know. That's awesome. And you're, you know, a little bit of an expert on so many different things now, I'm sure. Mm, not really. I, expert is the absolute wrong word. <laughs> I'm a, a dilettante. Tiny, you know I, a little I, bit about I, a lot of stuff. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I learned a lot, little bit. And by the way, what I've learned, that little bit that I've learned by anybody who actually knows anything, I would be challenged <laughs> on, on, on what it is I think I know. <laughs> yeah, but it's a so, cool way to, to encounter things that you undoubtedly would never have encountered otherwise. Absolutely. I just dug into things. I mean, my, my, my novel was dedicated to a uh, scientist working out of uh, Australia who, um, you know, who introduced me to the concept of um, uh, the femme fatale hypothesis and that... Uh, that uh, conversation with her, that first conversation, she actually, you know, exchanged emails with me and we just talked about my, my sort of, you know, layman's, you know, disbelief in, in this phenomenon. And she explained it to me. And uh, it's just that sort of thing, interacting with people like that, who are PhDs studying the behavior of, you know, praying mantises in Australia. That's, you know, now I'm an expert. <laughs> there you go. Well, we might be getting slightly ahead of ourselves here, but I feel like probably everybody else who's listening is wondering the same thing I am, which is, what is the femme fatale hypothesis? Well, that that is actually the title of my first uh, novel, published in uh, November of 2021, and uh, uh, the only novel that's been actually picked up and published so far. Uh, but um, that novel is a uh, is a novel that is named after a phenomenon that takes place in the insect world that intrigues the protagonist of the story, one of the protagonists in the story, uh, and that is that um, the uh, false garden mantid in Australia has been shown to actually exhibit a behavior whereby the females who are in poor health are able to increase their pheromone production to a level greater than the most healthy. Uh, females, and so they can attract uh, male uh, mantises for, for uh, supposedly for mating purposes, but instead they simply eat them. And uh, so there's no mating that takes place because all that female is trying to do is survive and uh, survive to mate another day. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. And so th that was a hypothesis. They were wondering why these females didn't just expire, why they were able to, why they were able to survive. And so they tested, she, this, this woman actually tested the, um, the hypothesis and uh, she proved that, that the, um, the, uh, the, the sicker, the sickest of the females could actually out attract the, mo the healthiest of the species. And, uh, and they could increase their, their um, physical uh, being by 40% by consuming one male. So, wow, that is a hell of an evolutionary flex that I would never, <laughs> well, ever have imagined would exist. Which is exactly what I, what my main character, when he, when I decided, you know, that he was somebody who was intrigued by this, his consternation as he is sort of losing his grip on the world. His consternation of all this is how can this survival technique survive evolution, right? The, this, the survival of the individual over the survival of the species. How, how does that happen? How does a species actually reward 
a uh, a a sick, disabled, essentially a, a a disabled, diseased you know creature, uh, instead of isolating that creature and letting her die and and you know supporting the healthier of the of the species. How is it that they're attracted to the, the weakest? And it's all about pheromone production and comes down to that. That's and so she, yeah, so I asked her, I said, why do you, th- how do you think this has developed? And she said, she thinks it's just a strategy for a quick meal. <laughs> that, was, that was Dr. Barry's, Dr. Barry's uh, response was, I just think it's a strategy for a wow. quick meal. <laughs> I mean, does it does it significantly prolong their lives? Does it boost their health? Sure, can, absolutely. Forty percent wow. with the consumption of one male, and now she can go back to uh, you know trying to you know get herself back up to a, a more uh, fecund state, and uh, and then she can uh, start uh, reproducing again. But she she suspends the creation of eggs so she can drive more home more hormone produ- uh, more um, energy to pheromone production. So she has fewer eggs. She has you know, fewer ability, less ability to actually procreate, but she attracts more males. It's, it's pretty, it's wow. pretty dastard. <laughs> That's just yeah. wow. Yeah. And it was just that. I mean, it's that curiosity in my mind trying to figure out, you know, how an entomologist, how somebody like that would would reconcile that their study of the insect world, and then what that would what that could do for me metaphorically as a writer, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of, in terms of taking that and, and weaving it into a relationship between two people. Wow. Well, let's, let's back up slightly and talk about oh, how sure. you decided to, <laughs> to do more creative writing. And then we'll jump back to this point. <laughs> well, the thing is that um, it, I think, I think the, the, the skip I made from, you know, high school and being Mr. Witty, um, and then you know going into professional writing and then leaving that to to focus on my own fiction there's a there's a point flexion point where i didn't um i didn't stop and that was i i was accepted after completing my studies in film and television uh communications at stanford i was accepted into the ma program creative writing fiction at uh, nyu and uh, I was studying with one of my you know, childhood heroes, E.L. Doctorow, whose book of Daniel was one of the books that um, that I read and felt suddenly that I understood why <laughs> books were so important um, and and how how reading could feel if you you know read deeply and seriously and and were just trying to pass the test. Um, so I. Um, I was felt I was delighted that I was admitted, and um, I was uh, at home working on my f- fiction and and studying for my MA with a one and a half year old daughter in my lap, and realizing there's not a future in this. <laughs> I I have to I have to figure out how I'm going to feed this child. <laughs> it's not going to you know it's not going to come from paying NYU to teach me how to write. So at the same time that I was at NYU. You know, studying for this MA, I uh, I was also doing some freelance uh, creative writing for people who were doing museum installation, video, you know, interactive video installations, and uh, writing promotional videos for corporations, that sort of thing. And I uh, I uh, was sitting there one night and said, I know how to write. Why should I pay somebody else to teach me how to write? I'm I'm making money writing, <laughs> so so I dropped out uh, of NYU, and that sort of that move sort of condemned me to a life of professional writing, uh, <laughs> because it's very difficult to you know, especially when you're doing my career, if you want to call it a career, uh, included a great deal of freelance writing, and then periods of being professionally engaged for four or five years with a company and then going back to my freelance writing. Um, So there wasn't a clear arc. I mean, there wasn't a clear arc where I was suddenly, you know, somebody's Mm -hmm. CEO. Um, I was uh, just sort of in and out of of these roles and I got the most pleasure out of just being a contract writer, regardless of what I was writing. Um, And uh, so that, but it's very hard to do that and make that living and then come home and do what so many of these gloriously talented writers do. And that is get up at four o'clock in the morning 
and you know do two hours of work before you know the kids wake up and somehow some way after a year crank out some glorious novel <laughs> that we all get to enjoy that was not me and part of the problem was i had not gone through the process of really learning how to write um and so i finally realized um not only that i hadn't put the time in to and, and gotten the licks in where you know when you're 20 something years old you think oh these people are saying no to me because they're just jealous you know or whatever you know <laughs> it's like it's like this is brilliant stuff you know and then you realize that that you're when you realize you don't know anything not only about what you're writing about but you don't know even know anything about writing um then you open yourself up to the possibility of going back to school so i did go back and i got an mfa and um that uh, is just what launched me into focusing on all that I did not know. And it's been a really great adventure. I mean, for me, it's less about publishing now. It's more about writing. It's more about just the exercise of sitting down with a blank page and trying to fill it with your own imagination as opposed to somebody else's idea of what they need to say to sell some products or train some people. Yeah, there's such different kinds of writing. And I don't know about you, but I've encountered an awful lot of people who say to me, you know, oh, but you're a writer. You can write blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, I don't know anything at all about that kind of writing. That is not the kind of writing I do. That is a completely yeah. different beast. Yeah. Yeah. So the first time I heard the term technical writing, I thought, oh, I could do that too. And then they told me what it was. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I did that for like a year. Oh, my year God. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, I, I, this was early, mid nineties. And I remember hearing people talk about how, you know, oh, being a technical writer made my, my other writing so much better. And I can see how that would be the case. And yet at the same time, it, it didn't encourage me to write at home. I think that you know, I used up all my energy on trying to be super, super clear about everything at work, which is where I, you know, am sure the improvements mm -hmm. came from that mm -hmm. people saw. Mm -hmm. But I was just like, you know, <laughs> I'm tired of dealing with words for today. I am not writing anything else when I get home. I will read someone else's, but I am not writing my own. Exactly. And I think that's a tough line and I'm sure that that happens in other professions too, but I think it's a tough line for writers. If you're writing for other people all day, it is tricky to find the energy to write your own stuff at any time, whether it's 4 a.m. or 8 p.m. or whatever it is. Absolutely. That's exactly what I was running into. And it's, and by the way, it's kind of exhausting to deal with that kind of work all the time. You know, it's like I, I'm working on a project right now um, to make a little pin money and uh, um, it's deal I'm dealing with law stuff related to the law. And, um, I'm being shown these documents that explain issues related to defending a deposition. And I'm having trouble keeping my eyes open reading this stuff. And uh, it's, it's just, it's really tough to, to go through this kind of stuff, staring at it all day long, trying to translate it into something, trying to create something creative out of it in terms of how you're going to, you know, communicate this to somebody else. And then switch gears and say, oh, now I'm going to go to scene three in this novel between these two characters I've created. <laughs> you just can't hear their voices at that point. You're like, I'm so distracted by this other work. I can't even hear my characters think. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's not. And it's interesting because when I was in high school, there were people who said, oh, you like to write. You should be a lawyer. And you're saying that and I'm going, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Well, you talk about technical, those people who were talking about technical writing were probably saying that it made them having to be very concise and very specific mm -hmm. and very clear in their writing. And they probably thought that made them really, really uh, better writers. If you want to be a lawyer, you have to obfuscate, you have to, yeah. you, you have to deceive, you have to, you have to be as unclear as possible and hope somebody else steps in and steps in the muck and, and reveals something that they weren't supposed to reveal because you've asked the question in such, such an obtuse way that they thought they understood it, but they didn't. You know? <laughs> so it's a completely different world. Yeah. Law is like the, the embodiment of, you know, why use one word when 37 will do. <laughs> and when 28 of them are words nobody's ever heard before. Right. Or, the or the lawyer might have made up on the spot. So. Half of them were in Latin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that, and that's where the medical writing comes in, too. That's what I mean. Like, you, you realize that all these different words. So what is that? Oh, it's just, it's a protein. 
And what is that? Well, that's a protein too. (laughs) Why do they have all these different names for protein? It's like, I'm glad you can keep track of which protein is which. Because to me, they're all just protein. Yeah, which no disrespect to people who do that because it is definitely a talent and it's one that I don't have. So great respect for anyone who does. But yeah, oof. Yeah, that's 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 why you know Chat GPT does better on medical tests than doctors, <laughs> which is terrifying. <laughs> well, it's just because the doctors are like, "What was that word again for protein?" <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> which Latin word was the one I which, knew? Right. Which was the word? Was this an allele or was this a? Let's see. Wait a minute. What kind of protein was it? <laughs> yeah. So, how did you strike that balance when you started writing your own stuff? I quit. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> I walked away from my professional life. Uh, and I'm only, like I said, I'm working on a project now. I Right now, I don't look for work anymore. But I was that guy who was easy to get along with, a quick learner, very flexible. So I still have people calling me and saying, hey, I don't know what you're doing right now. I know you're working on a novel probably, but you know we need somebody to knock out this uh, script or you know whatever. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I can do that. What's it pay? <laughs> my my rate, my, my professional rate has gone up. My hourly rate has gone up. The, the less interest I am in, in having the work. So. <laughs> I think that's totally fair. I'll, I'll pull mm-hmm. myself back into your world, but this is what it's going to cost you. Yeah. Especially yeah. they say, especially they say they need somebody to fix something somebody else wrote. Like, oh, my repair rate is really high. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oof. Wow. So you went and you and you did the MFA. I'm curious to know how the MFA experience compared to the MA experience as much of it as you did. Well, the MA experience was interesting because it was it was college again. So it wasn't just uh, creative writing. So I was taking a creative writing course with uh, Dr. O and I was uh, also taking other courses where you Basically, what when you're studying for an MA, uh, it's a place like N- NYU. What they're basically saying to you is, you don't know anything. Of, you have nothing to write about because you don't know anything. So you have to learn stuff to write about. You know? So we're going to have you reading books and studying history. So take other electives that are outside of the creative writing department. Uh, we expect you to earn enough credits to to graduate. And we're not going to tell you which ones you have, what you have to read, but go find other stuff, learn about other stuff so that you have stuff to write about when you get done. Meanwhile, you're also going to take these classes and workshops. And uh, again, when I I was at that point, I was uh, late 20s, early 30s, and uh, I thought I knew everything. So what the hell, what do I need NYU for? <laughs> yeah, we all think we know everything at that age, right? <laughs> sure. Sure, I read, I read a couple of books. I read, you know, On Moral Fiction by John Gardner. I knew, I knew, (laughs) I knew what it meant to be a writer. (laughs) Yeah. And yet, you know, having done an MFA, it it is an interesting choice because it's not necessarily the right choice for everybody. You know, I think, I don't know about your experience, but I I think a lot of people go into an MFA thinking that it's going to get them a teaching job, which I think is less and less likely as time goes by, especially, you know, now that there are PhDs in creative writing, I think fewer places are taking an MFA as a terminal degree. But, you know, either that or they think, yeah, Yeah. but but I think, you know, it's it's either that, you know, I'm going to get a teaching job and teach writing or, you know, I'm going to become the great American novelist. And neither one of those is guaranteed with the MFA. So it's, if people ask me whether or not they should go get an MFA, I usually say it depends on what you want from it. You know, would, yeah. My 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 answer to that would be, you know, what do you need? You know, what does your writing need? Because I think what my writing, what I needed, is people whose job it was to have to read my work and have to give me good feedback on it. You know, you know. I mean, I could I could you know send a story off to my sister and she'd tell me you know what I spelled wrong or where my punctuation was wrong, but she wouldn't be able to offer. She, we wasn't willing, you know, uh, friends, same way with friends, people who are familiars, they'll tell you general statements about, I liked it. I didn't like it. You know, that, or that was, you know, I was a little confused by this, but they won't say this was my experience of reading this story and articulated in such a way where you can go, Oh, if that's what you were thinking about. 
I screwed up, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, I'm not talking about somebody telling you how to fix it because as a writer, that's your job. It's your job to figure out how to get it right. But understanding in a very critical way, somebody who is a, a deep reader, a critical reader, someone like a Francine Prose, you know, you read her mm-hmm. book. If you've ever read how to, how to uh, read like a writer, yep. you know, somebody who reads like that and, and, and understands that they do not have to put on the kid gloves. You know, they, they can tell you exactly what you, what you need to know is their experience as a reader of your work, because if you're trying to create a certain type of experience, or you're trying to give rise to certain emotions and you're trying to, you know, befuddle and intrigue or whatever it is, and none of what you're trying to do is coming across, then something is wrong. You know? yeah. And you have to, and you have to figure out how to fix it. But if you're getting the feedback that you expected, people are are asking questions as they're going through that are exactly the questions you want them to be asking and exactly the things you want them to be wondering about and exactly the reasons why you want them to turn the page, then you can revel in the fact that you're doing it right. It's working. You know? And so you need that kind of feedback that you can so you, that you can tell, is it working or is it not? And I need it. I did not have that group of friends around me at that point in my life. Uh, if I'd stayed at NYU, maybe I would have had 10 people who were all in different phases of their careers and their lives that I could send papers to and say, hey, could you read this for me, man? You know, remember when we were back you know, six years ago when we were back at NYU? Oh, yeah, Dave, nice to see you again. Yeah, I'll read that for you. This sucks, man. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> but, you know, I didn't have that group. I didn't have those people. And when I got, when I did my MFA, I finally had those people now. Not all. You're not going to listen to all of them. You're going to find those people who understand what you're trying to do. Those people who zone it. People who care. People who say, "I love your work. I want to. I want to help you make it better." And you're going to find those people who are just sort of, you know, mailing it in like anybody else. But if you want a workshop where people have to read your work and they have to give you feedback, and you want teachers, experienced writers who have been through this as well, and they they are being paid to read your work and give you criticism, if you feel you need that, go get an MFA. If you don't feel you need that, then um, there must be some other motivation. Like you think you need a terminal degree. I was there. I was actually studying with a guy who was a friend of mine now, very good friend of mine. I was studying in a program with a guy who who could have taught me, could have been my sole mentor in the program. But he was a student who had written five novels and he needed the MFA because they wanted to hire him at Portland State, but they couldn't hire him without Mm -hmm. an MFA. He didn't have an MFA, and the problem was he hadn't even finished his undergraduate degree. This is a guy who had, this is a guy who had written and published books, and yet you know he still couldn't get a teaching position because he needed an MFA. So he found a program that would admit him even without his BA. So he got his MFA without getting a BA, <laughs> and and he is now a teacher at Portland State. So uh, the. Uh, there, there's a, there are reasons. There are good reasons mm-hmm. for going and getting an MFA. Um, but if, 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 if you don't know what your is, what it is you're seeking there, then you're probably not going to find it. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think you know MFAs don't come cheap. So if you want oh, one, no. you got to make sure you're getting it for the right reasons. Absolutely. You know, if they're, because, because I've talked to some people who, you know, hire a specific writing mentor to work with and depending Mm -hmm. on what kind of thing you're looking for, if you can find the right person to do that, that's probably going to be cheaper than an MFA. So, you know, it's like, I would never tell anybody, you know, unconditionally, good grief. No, don't go get an MFA. I just think you really need to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. I started off before, you know, you have to go through the application process. So, you know, it takes a while to get into an MFA program. Mm-hmm. Um, so while I'm, I was waiting, I was looking for uh, area workshops and things. And, and I wanted formal ones. Like, again, you want, you want someone, you, you, you want an, uh, a workshop that is led by somebody who, who knows something. You know? <laughs> it can't be just somebody who's doing this because this is their way of making a little bit of money. So they don't, because they don't... Right. Uh, they don't have a job either. <laughs> and so they're going to tell you, you have to find somebody who you really respect. And I found uh, Nomi Eve in, uh, in Philadelphia uh, teaching at what she called Story Lab through Drexel University, sponsored by Drexel University. Um, and she was not at Drexel University at the time, but she was, you know, she was um, uh, doing the Story Lab project in affiliation with them. And 
you know, just to jump ahead in the story, she's now running their MFA program. She uh, that they started uh, the low residency program. She started it uh, since I, you know, have done the workshops with her. But it was working with her in those workshops, multiple workshops. I think I did four different one one where she just gave me a free workshop because I'd had so I'd done so many with them. <laughs> but uh, I I did th- somewhere three or four uh, workshops with with Nomi, and she um, it wasn't until she said to me, Dave, I think you found your voice that I was in a position to go off and feel like I had something I could show to uh, an MFA program that might get me admitted to the program. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, the, the MFA is not what prepared me to write. It was Nomi who really got me to the point and mentored me to the point where I had something where I could submit it and it would not be embarrassing. So, um, Find that person. You find your nomi yeah. app, you know? <laughs> well, and that's a yeah. good point, too, because, you know, I bet a lot of people apply to a program like that and aren't accepted and can't figure out why and think that this is just not for them. And that might right. not be true. It might just right. be that you need to find somebody to work with before then. And, you know, because it's hard. Yeah. In fact, it's probably basically impossible to figure out how to write well on your own. You know, it's people i think think that they can sit down and you know no disrespect to julia cameron but like read all of the julia cameron books or read all of so and so you know john gardner or whoever and figure it out themselves and you you can't you can't see your own work as well as somebody else can whether they're mfa faculty or somebody in a workshop who can help you get ready to to get there you know it's like you you don't want to if you haven't been accepted, it doesn't necessarily mean you're not any good. It may right. just mean that you need more practice. You need to yeah. figure out some more stuff that you don't know so that you are ready for it. Well, there are, I mean, it's hard to generalize any of this. Mm-hmm. I never do. I, you know, when people ask me for any sort of advice, what would you tell somebody? I, I, I just basically say there's nothing in my experience that you can generalize to anybody else. And that's why I'm so befuddled why so many people want to hear about a particular writer's, you know, life background, how they got to where they were, how they write, whether they write standing up, whether they write in the morning, whether they write, you know, why does anybody care about this stuff? If you want to write, I mean, it might be, you might be interested in somebody's biography. That's one thing. It's a whole nother thing to uh, want to know how they do what they do, thinking like, oh, if I just imitate that, you know, that's like taking somebody's work and transcribing it out of the book and writing it down yourself. And thinking that that's the same as writing it yourself from your own imagination. Yeah. It's an exercise. You can do that. There are people who have taken and, and transcribed other people's work as an exercise in trying to understand how to write a good sentence or how to write a, a great paragraph. But, you know, that's not necessarily, if you can do that kind of self-talk thing, fabulous. I mean, more power to you. You're probably a genius. You know, you're, you're amazing. Yeah, I got nothing to say to you. Go do it. Most people can't just read somebody else's work and say, now I get it. Now I get it. I understand. I understand how that person did that. There are just so many little details. I mean, some of the things that Nomi Eve taught me was you know, just little little tidbits, just little little, little pieces of, uh, of advice about the importance of specificity of detail. You know, it's like how many times I've, I've read and, you know, like, we won't disrespect any writers in this conversation, <laughs> but there, there are people that you will read that you just go, how does, how do, does an editor not tell this person that they've said a red slash of lipstick three different times over 30 pages? I mean, that level of detail is cool once, but mm-hmm. three times, I mean, it's, that's a tick. And then you have, you know, why, why is it that, so nobody's telling this person that their writing is horribly cliche, that this is just not, this is not interesting imagery. This is all just pulling off easy stuff to get a picture in somebody's head that is just a stereotypical, you know, normal picture of an individual in this particular setting. Why isn't anybody calling it this person on that? Well, it's because most people don't read at the level of detail and the, and the depth that people who want to write well, you know, do. So don't get caught up in reading bad, shallow work and uh, thinking, yeah. oh, if I just copy that, I'll be a bestseller too. <laughs> you should say, what do you want to leave behind? What do you want your legacy to be? Do you want your legacy to be a best-selling cliche 
boring you know, novel or do you want your legacy to be a novel that sold 250 copies but was you know is never goes out of print because people think it's worth having on a shelf somewhere i, yeah. I don't know i mean you, 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 everybody makes their own call so yeah and it's it's interesting because you know the kind of interviews that you were talking about remind me of every every once in a while and not not for a while but especially mm-hmm. a couple of years ago i would answer questions about writing on Quora. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most of them were pretty reasonable questions, but I started getting these questions that really blew my mind and not in a great way. They kind of made mm. me sad because they would mm. be questions that were so focused on technical detail. Like mm. literally they would be questions like how many pages should my chapter be? Oh yeah. Or, Isn't amazing. What font should I use? Or, but, you know, Nancy, stuff like Nancy. that. Nancy, the, the problem is the problem is that people actually answer these questions. Right. People actually will tell them, oh, you should, you know, your, your chapter should, and, and people will write books, how to write a best-selling novel. And they'll tell you, make your chapter no more than five days, whatever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I would answer them and say, what font do you like? Yeah. Until you're yeah. going to submit it to somebody else, it doesn't matter what font you use. What font do you like? What matters is that you put the words on the page and then you do something with them once you have them. And you're missing that part because you're hyper-focusing on all of this little piddly stuff that doesn't actually matter. You know, your chapter should be the number of pages it needs to be to be the chapter that you need it to be. And then probably end up being half of that when it gets edited. So you don't worry about it now. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, no, you're getting way too hung up on this. Just write the story. Right. You know, and and it makes me sad because it's like, you know, you're, you're either using this as an excuse not to write or you are just so worked up on trying to get all the details right that you're not actually getting any words on the page because you yeah. can't if this is what you're focusing on. Or you're writing for the wrong reasons, basically. Right. I mean, I, I think if the, the, the antidote to all of this is for people to, you know, read some uh, Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just if you just read Nobel Prize winners, you realize that, you know, everything's on the table. You want to use quotation marks. You don't want to use quotation marks. You don't want to have paragraph breaks. You want to have one 300 page uh, chapter. You want to have, uh, yeah. you want to have, you want to have, uh, you know, a, an entire uh, um, novel that's, uh, that's uh, uh, from uh, one person's interior monologue point of view. You want to have omniscient third person. You want to have three different voices. I mean, everything is on the table. And all you got to do is read a few of these people whose books are considered, you know, groundbreaking, whose whose life's work is considered uh, uh, worthy of being acknowledged by the Nobel Committee. And you'll see it's all over the place. I, you know, just picking up some of these books by these people and you realize, why am I troubling about whether or not I indent you know, my, my <laughs> paragraphs, you know, like, you know, and if you want, if you're concerned about your, your font, just read the submission guidelines. <laughs> yeah. But until then, use whatever font you like. Exactly. <laughs> you can change it. It's all exactly. okay. Yeah. Just don't use that comic, whatever it is. Comic sans, yeah. <laughs> yeah <right. laughs> I know somebody who's made me completely paranoid about papyrus now. Every time I see it, I think of her. So yeah, I can't use that one anymore. <laughs> so how did you how did you take this insect phenomenon (laughs) and turn it into a novel which is a huge question it's probably not a fair question so feel free to break that down into whatever makes sense it wasn't that wasn't the uh, that wasn't actually the um uh the um, process at all. Uh, The process was that I had this idea of a novel called um, The Good Neighbor. Uh, And The Good Neighbor was what Nomi Eve was was reading when she was seeing like 25 page chunks of what I was doing. Uh, And it was about uh, a man and a woman. Uh, The wife is dying of lung cancer and the husband is um, uh, been take, trying to take care of her. He's a retired uh, professor uh, emeritus of, from uh, University of Pennsylvania. And um, I decided he was an entomologist. Um, and um, the early scenes were just the fact that 
the stress and strain of taking care of his wife was taking a toll because his mind is beginning to slip. So he's starting to show signs of of dementia, uh, early signs of dementia as he's taking care of his wife and the stress and the grief of doing that. Um, And through that, he starts noticing out his window to start taking much more interest in what's going on in his neighbor's life. And he realizes he can basically see her whole life in like a diorama outside his window. So he spends so much time in his office down the hall from his wife's room where she's basically bedridden that he starts noticing her life. Uh, the people that she has working in the yard, the you know the fact that you can see all the way across her living room from his window and you can see uh, the stairs where she goes upstairs. You can see her walking from her bedroom to her bathroom through the window. He's noticing all of these things and taking great interest in her. That's where it started. And then when I realized... Uh, I, I needed to expand these characters and uh, and give them some put some meat on their bones. Uh, I decided, okay, he's an entomologist. How does that factor into this story? And when I read about the femme fatale hypothesis, I just thought, if I were an entomologist, particularly if I was a failing, <laughs> somebody, my mind was beginning to slip, and I was a professor emeritus, and I, you know, was looking for some sense of identity. I would want to write an essay on this phenomenon, and try to hypothesize about why, why, you know, the nature nature had taken this odd turn. So I started delving into it and imagining a person with a couple of gears slipping here and there, uh, infatuated with this mantis idea and basically that mantis becoming his muse as he sits at his computer and tries to write the the riddle of the femme fatale hypothesis so um he's working on that paper he's working on a paper about the femme fatale hypothesis as part of the novel and that's where we get into some of his interiority and some of the conflicts and things that are going on in his mind and that's how you as a reader learn a little bit about just how how far afield his mind is going <laughs> yeah as that as particularly as that mantis becomes more and more character in his life somebody that he is speaking to and and sort of um the transference he does between his his uh relationship with his wife and his relationship with this mantis that is in uh, has has been uh turned into a paperweight that's sitting on his desk um Anyway, that's that's uh, the brief of it. Wow. <laughs> the not so brief of it. The not so brief brief of it. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So, that so anyway, it's interesting. Like a lot of things to to learn about. Not just well, the mantis, yeah. but the you know dementia part, and it's much yeah. more about it's a, it's it's much more story about grief and loss and love and you know just. Uh, and also, um, it's it's a big it's a, a a lot of time spent on death and not death just like the dying part, but the part about what death's role is in our life and how we should. I'm a big fan of, of Stephen Jenkinson's books. He's you know he's got Come of Age and he's got uh, Die Die Wise. Um, Stephen Jenkinson is somebody who worked in palliative care for years and years. And he feels like the reason we have such a fear of death and the reason that we treat death so badly in our society uh, and and fear it and run from it uh, all the time and want to be protected from it and want to be drugged so we don't have to experience it is that we we uh, it's, it's all it's all about how we live our lives leading up to that death. If you live your life in fear, you will die in fear. If you live your life in celebration of life, you realize that the end of it is just another moment of celebration. And, uh, and he, he is, uh, he is somebody who, um, a lot of his writing about this, I, um, uh, try to internalize as I'm thinking about what, um, when we, when we recognize that we are losing our agency, when most of us have, have, uh, uh, have a choice in the end. You, everybody, you know, everybody. I'm a person of a certain age. I've buried a lot of people in my in my life, including a sister and a mother and a, and a, a father-in-law and a mother-in-law. Good deaths, bad deaths, the whole thing. Um, in every case, nobody was. Only my father, years and years ago, was taken out by a heart attack quickly. Everybody else died 
you know, knowing they were going to die, aging out, dementia, whatever it is. Um, and the people that died the most graciously were those people who were came to grips with their lives. They were they they, had, they understood their lives and they wanted to control how they died. They wanted to have full control over, you know, they didn't want to be hooked up to a life-saving you know, monitor with a you know, breathing tube and they didn't want to be force-fed and they just said, I'm taking control of this. That agency is something that once that once you are demented and you can no longer decide for yourself, that agency is gone. It's gone. And in this in this day and age, when particularly people in their 80s, we have so many people showing signs of dementia, uh, it's something that is very close to my heart. It's a topic very close to my heart. Mm-hmm. My mother lived till 90 and then decided she was done. And she knew what her choices were. And she stopped eating and drinking and she went out peacefully and of her own choice. And it was a gift. It was a gift to the family. She basically said, this is how I want to die. And she engineered that whole process with the help of my sister, who's a death doula. And uh, so this is, meanwhile, you know, I've seen my mother-in-law die kicking and screaming and, you know, completely uh, terrorized by life. Um, So um, there's good ways and bad ways to go. And I really feel strongly that that uh, we all need to think about this. Now, I'm not saying that the way my book ends and, you know, and, and what, what Kelsey Spade is at the end of this book is the right thing to do. I'm just saying that it's it's one way. There are other ways. Some people, you know, might think that, that there are <clears throat> there are better ways. Some people may have a completely different approach to death and may really feel like it's not our choice, regardless of how much agency we have at the time. I'm not saying there's a right or a wrong way. I'm just saying we all got to think about this. It's very, it's a very important topic. And so I spent some time thinking about it. <laughs> wow. Boy, I feel like we could have a whole separate conversation just about Oh, I'm sure. Because yeah. <laughs> I think, I so, think you're right, you yeah. know, and it is, we certainly seem to have a, a really growing population of people who won't get to have that kind of choice. So mm-hmm. not yeah. unless they, they understand what dementia is and realize they're not getting their mind back, you know, it, that it's only going to get worse. It's, and it may be a question of, you know, slowing down the process in the short term. I don't know. Are they going to come up with, with a cure for Alzheimer's? When I was writing about this in the 1990s, I spoke to a doctor who was doing research on this disease, Alzheimer's in particular. I'm not talking about Parkinson's or any of these other ones, but Alzheimer's in particular, he said, we're five years away from a treatment or perhaps a cure. That was 30 years ago. So these guys are having real trouble figuring out the pathology of Alzheimer's disease, then what triggers it, how to stop it, what 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 is a symptom and what is a cause. They don't know yet. They're they're still fumbling around. Anybody who thinks that they're about to solve Alzheimer's disease is deluding themselves. So if you're sitting around, if you're if you're 80 years old right now and you're starting to feel a little bit like, you know, things are slipping, you have to make a decision right now because nobody's there's no calorie coming <laughs> to, to pull this yeah. all back together. <laughs> Oof, that's cheery. <laughs> and yet, you yeah, know, yeah. wanting to avoid things that aren't cheery is how we end up in this mess. Uh, we haven't made a decision or thought of eggs and my mother's death was a beautiful thing and she could have gone on for at least months maybe years but it was a beautiful yeah. thing but it's also mm-hmm. fascinating to me that 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 is what gripped your imagination mm-hmm. to help fuel an entire novel yep it's a short one. It's only 200 pages. So. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I could have used it to fuel another hundred. It would have been a little bleak. <laughs> but <laughs> still, it's it's not the kind of thing that really, you know, that most people want to think about for more than five minutes, much less to spend that much time with it. Well, that's true. That's why there's organizations like Compassion and Choices that want to explain to you what your options are, so you know going in. And what's happening now is a lot of people my age are being forced to have conversations with their parents or, you know, people a little younger than I am being forced to have conversations with their parents because their parents aren't facing it. So, um, yeah, we need to, we need to have those conversations with our parents so that they can have the death they deserve and they can understand how they can participate in that. And then we have to remember that when it comes our time. 
That's the tricky thing, right? Yeah. I, I watched all of this with my grandparents and now, you know, hoping because apparently I just never bothered to do the mental math that there would be mm -hmm. more time before mm -hmm. it was my turn. <laughs> and we're not, we're not there yet, but we, mm -hmm. you know, there's no denying mm -hmm. that every day we get closer to that mm -hmm. point. It's just like, Oh, do you remember, do you remember all the things you learned 20 years ago? Exactly. Remember what you saw? Remember what you, remember what you saw that you didn't like? Yeah. Yeah. But the, uh, the, uh, yeah, like I keep trying to remind people, you know, when they talk about having time or why don't you go do this or whatever, you know, I, I try to remind the, uh, everybody that I have a lot more to look back on than I have to look forward to. So, <laughs> so, you know, I have to be very picky about what I do with the time going forward. So, which is part of the reason why I just quit, you know, I quit yeah. the full, full time job and just said, okay, I'm, I'm retiring, quote unquote, retiring. Now I'll, I'll go back and figure out. I need to supplement my income. I'll try to figure out a few ways to make some money. I'll go be a greeter at you know Home Depot, but you know, uh, but I'm not going back to just full time sitting at somebody at a desk writing stuff for somebody else. There's got to be time for me to write for myself. Yeah, I think that's a perspective that we also kind of avoid because mm -hmm. denial is powerful stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was uh, that was the uh, the one of my my favorite lines was uh, was uh, I think I told you about this from the book The Swerve. And it was my uh, my mother, you know, when she was uh, when she was dying. One of the things she recommended I do is read the Swerve, and uh, that's it's Greenblatt's book, Stephen Greenblatt, Harvard mm -hmm. guy, and he wrote a book about uh, the book hunter, you know, Arcolio, who uh, who followed his dream instead of getting a job being a scribe. He uh, he followed his dream of hunting down lost books, and one of the books he this is a, a true story. One of the books he rediscovered was on the nature of things by uh, that uh, uh, was um, written by Lucretius about the Epicurean philosophy, Epicurus's philosophy, and uh, um, uh, the Bercoli character is interesting because the reason he uh, he picks to uh, to give up the life of you know the paid life and do the, the roaming book the wandering book uh, hunter's life. Is that the pattern of dreaming, deferral, and compromise? He says was um, the uh, altogether familiar pattern that is the epitome of a failed life. And so, when I uh, when I saw that sentence, the pattern of dreaming, deferral, and compromise being the epitome of a failed life, I said, "Oh my God, that's my life!" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you can only defer for so long. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think you can probably defer indefinitely, but you'll pay for it. Oh, it, there'll be a point where you, there's no time left to defer. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then, then you're really up a creek because there's no time left to make up for it. Yeah, there's no new debt. I'll tell you, time flows in one direction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't get any more of it. And don't yeah. be, don't, don't be, don't be deceived. You cannot save time. You cannot buy time. You cannot make time. You know, these are lovely phrases, but you can't really do them. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Boy, but one sentence like that, mm. that, that, yeah. yeah. Mm. It's definitely a wake up call. Have you heard from anybody who's read the book who did suddenly say, gee, I need to start thinking about all of these things? I mean, I don't oh. know that that was necessarily your intent, but since it's in there. Well, the interesting thing about it is that uh, I used that conversation uh, as sort of a stepping stone for, you know, uh, promoting the book in the early going. So one of the things I did, I, I, I put the book out there as, as being sort of my credential in, in all of this and then led a conversation with three uh, uh, other people who were um, uh, involved in the death trade. Um, and uh, we, call, we called that leaning into death. And I just, I hosted it. My, my credential was I just written the book. So uh, we talked about uh, the importance of, of, uh, of planning and thinking about and understanding this whole notion of, of uh, you know, we all got, we, nobody gets out of here alive. Um, and so I've had a, a few conversations. I was just out, you know, last October, I was out in uh, uh, San Diego. And while I was out there for my high school reunion, uh, we organized a chat at the library where I did the same thing. I hosted some people who were involved in in uh, advising people as to what their choices are. So it's been sort of a linchpin to promoting the book, uh, having the conversation about death and dying. Um, 
so it's um it was never sort of my intent to do that but it was a natural you know offshoot and you know, when you write a book and everybody says okay now you got to promote it you're like wait a minute i thought that was my publisher's job no no she's nope <laughs> she's she's expecting you to do that i'm like oh okay so you got to come up with clever ideas and my publicist said how about this and so she got me a, a seat you know on a on the uh at the brooklyn book festival you know hosting this hosting this conversation so um but yeah it's uh, so it's always been a part of the conversation about the book. Yeah. That's fantastic. I like that there's that, that sort of, let's say silver lining. That's not the right phrase. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> like added mm-hmm. bonus, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So what are you was, working on? Now? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say everybody, need, everybody needs an angle. <laughs> 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 you got to have an angle. You got to go up with some sort of an angle. Nobody, nobody's just going to take your book and put it out there. And all of a sudden everybody's going to find it. It's just, you know, going viral is, uh, is, is not commonplace in this world of books. Maybe, you know, every once in a while there's a 50 shades of gray. Other than that, there's like three mil- three and a half million other books released every year. So, yep. Sorry, young writers, yeah. as we shatter another illusion yeah. for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what are you so, working on now? I, I finished the second novel about six months ago, and I've been trying to uh, uh, get some folks. What I what I've decided to do is, um, uh, you know, the, the, the whole the whole uh, uh, write about what you know. You know, that's always that's a trap. You know, uh, that's one of my favorite uh, uh, favorite responses to that was by Toni Morrison when she was teaching at Princeton. Whenever new students would come in, they'd always be handing in these somewhat autobiographical uh stories and she would criticize them and then she would say you know you know stop writing about what you know you don't know anything <laughs> use your imagination <laughs> yeah. but so i've been I, I on the one hand uh i am trying to use my imagination and my curiosity to find about things that i don't know anything about um but i've decided just to because my time is limited and i'm not going to write 90 books like uh like stephen king uh but i might get out three or four more before I die. Um, I'm going to focus them on this place. I'm going to focus them on where I've been living for the last 35 years. So I've created this fictional, you know, town, uh, river town in uh, Pennsylvania that I call Marsville. And uh, Marsville is now the, the, uh, uh, the spot of the second novel. This is where, this is where the people in the femme fatale hypothesis live. And now I've taken that same place and I've put a retired, uh, um, private investigator and his uh, disgraced journalist niece have come together in Marsville. And uh, she's, she's looking to reboot her life because she's lost her job in Pittsburgh to a scandal. And uh, he's trying to be retired and uh, was, is hoping that her stay uh, in his, uh, in the apartment above his garage is going to be brief. Uh, But uh, it turns out that a friend of his uh, brings some ashes to his house, but he thinks are ashes to his house, uh, and says, um, these aren't ashes. This is concrete and they're supposed to be the remains, the remains of my wife. And can you help me figure out what happened? And that triggers an investigation into 21st century body snatching. Uh, that is really, it's really ripped right from the headlines. Actually, if I don't know if you heard about the mother and daughter funeral parlor team that were selling bodies recently, I don't know if you, you heard about that story. But I was researching this from the 2010-12 time period. Reuters wrote a big article about this was happening all across the country and that a lot lot of people were implicated in this. Um, So I made up a story about uh, a funeral director and his family who get involved in uh, selling body parts. So that's that's called The Gift of Death. And that's my my first attempt to write a, a... a crime novel that is actually has literary aspirations, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think I quite reached the level of a Louise Erdrich or a, or, or a John Banville, but <laughs> that's, that's the idea. Still, wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, what an idea. Yeah. yeah it's, it's interesting. So I, I, I think there's going to be a second uh, McQuaid novel. It's uh, you know, Gordon McQuaid and his, and his, his niece, um, Raina Koye. And uh, I think there's going to be a second one of those novels because I have another subject that I want to, I want to broach. So. Very cool. Yeah. Well, 
I will definitely be keeping my eye out for that because I'm intrigued. Well, I'll send you the PDF and you can read it now. Okay. <laughs> there we go. It may be a while before it's between two covers. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking with me. It, this has been really, really fascinating. Well, this has been fun for me. I appreciate your uh, giving me the opportunity. That's this week's episode. Thanks so much to my guest, David Roth, and to you for listening. Please leave a review for this episode. There is a link right in your podcast app. And in it, tell us about a time when you knew it was time to quit something and start something new. If you enjoyed our conversation, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Thanks so much. If this episode resonated with you, don't forget to get in touch on any of my social platforms or even via email at nancy at fycuriosity.com tell me what you loved. And if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now, and you haven't yet signed up for my free email series on six of the most common creative beliefs that are messing you up, please check it out. It'll untangle those myths and help you get rolling again. You can find it at fycuriosity.com. And there's also a link right in your podcast app. See you there and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. Thanks. Thanks.